นโมทัสสะภะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดามังสังฆังนมัสสะ
which outshines the darkness. And, and that was Ajahn Chah's message. That was the evidence of Ajahn Chah's life. And all the great teachers, all the great disciples of the Buddha have indicated to us, for us, that this is possible. And that's certainly something to feel tremendously uh, grateful for, something we're uh, very fortunate to have received. And, because if we don't have that, if we don't have that confidence, if we don't have that faith, then we're just left with the darkness, the confusion, the complexity, the chaos. And, of course, for many people, that's the reality that they live in and the state of intense chaos and desperately trying to make sense of that. Well, Ajahn Chah's teaching and example was not just theory, but also the practice that it's not just something to believe in that things are going to turn out okay in the future if you hold the right belief system but this is what you can do about it there is there is a training to pick up there is a path of practice to give oneself into or as the Buddha put it there is a way that we can walk And Ajahn Chah's way, uh, any of you who've read his translations of his teachings know that his way was very simple. It was a very simple, very direct pointing. It wasn't complicated, wasn't showy, and certainly wasn't self-promoting. In fact, Ajahn Chah once commented about this... Uh, promotion of Dhamma this was many years ago now but it was at a time when technology and it was developing and and certain monks and monasteries were getting into promoting themselves, advertising the Thai word for advertising is kosana and, and Ajahn Chah's comment on that was prak kosana dui kwam sangup the the way that a summoner, a monk or a nun, promotes himself or advertises himself is with their stillness, with the example of their stillness. Not, not making a lot of noise or a lot of show, and this was certainly the case uh, for Ajahn Chah. Huh? Is one of the discourses of the Buddha, the Mahamangala Sutta, which we regularly recite here, and many of you will be familiar with, I'm sure. There's a line in there, uh, stanza that says, Samana Nancha Dasanang Etang Mangala Mutamang. The sight of a Samana is a great blessing. Samana Nancha Dasanang Etang Mangala Mutamang. Seeing a Samana. And Traditionally, conventionally speaking, it means like seeing, seeing a monk or a nun is very auspicious, is a great blessing. And if it's a well-practiced monk or nun, somebody really who's really given themselves whole body mind surrendering to the training, then there can be indeed a beauty in that. Like sometimes you just aspects of nature like lately we had some very beautiful weather and 
down at the lake in the morning, the, the stillness of the lake at sunrise you know, is a very beautiful scene to behold. There's just a, a natural beauty in observing that stillness, that quietude, mm-hmm. that gentleness, that loveliness. That in itself is just naturally beautiful. And, and so it can be to, to see somebody who's well-trained and well-settled and their Dhamma practice. There's also another dimension to it, and this seeing of a samana is a great blessing. And that is because it reflects, it reminds us of something within ourselves. There's something within all of us that intuitively at least really appreciates stillness. We're probably all capable of enjoying having fun and mm-hmm. jumping around, <laughs> exercising, partying maybe, dancing, a certain happiness, that activity. However, on another level, I would suggest there's, there's an aspect of us that really quietly appreciates the beauty of stillness deep stillness inner stillness and this was very much a part of Ajahn Chah's message the the teaching was to encourage people to come to recognize the benefit of inner stillness Mm. he wasn't one for preaching at people and intimidating them into spending many hours cultivating deep samadhi and that wasn't his style. But he did certainly speak a lot about becoming familiar with the still mind, the peaceful heart. Not as a rejection of activity, not at all. In fact, the... When it came to, for instance, if any of his monks had to go to Bangkok and and I'd come back and complain about, oh, you can't practice in Bangkok, you know, it's so difficult, too much noise and activity, and he would just kind of growl at them and say, if you can't practice in Bangkok, you can't practice here in the forest. If you can't practice in the forest, you can't practice in the city. And the same applied for if somebody got sick and had malaria fever and said, oh, I haven't been practicing lately, Lumpur. I, I've been sick, with, I've had a fever and I couldn't practice. And he would just kind of grunt and say, well, if you can't practice when you're sick, you can't practice when you're healthy. You can't practice when you're healthy, you can't practice when you're sick. So I wasn't taking a position against activity for stillness, but it was definitely encouraging a familiarity with stillness, recognizing the benefit of stillness, the advantage of being able to access deep stillness. Hopefully uh, all of you have helped yourself to a copy of that biography uh, that's on display in the entrance to the Dhamma Hall here. Uh, If you haven't, please do take a copy. It's titled uh, Stillness Flowing. 
it sounds like a paradox, but very much Ajahn Chah's message was there's not a conflict between activity and stillness if there's right perspective, if there's right view, if there's right understanding. But this takes a familiarity with deep stillness. And so there's a lot of his teaching was an encouragement to cultivate this, to develop this familiarity. There's another book called Still Forest Pool, some of you may have come across, by Jack Cornfield and Paul Brighter. Very much the message in that is if you become acquainted with the reflection you see in stillness, then there's many wonderful and mysterious things that you can learn. And so if we didn't know stillness, or if we don't know stillness, then the ability to learn is limited. We can feel chronically obstructed. And perhaps, probably all of us to some degree, varying degrees, are familiar with that. The mind won't settle and we feel obstructed. And Ajahn Chah's view on that is there's nothing wrong with reality. What's lacking is the familiarity with natural inner stillness. And so he was very keen on encouraging his monks, his nuns, the laymen, the laywomen, young and old, to put effort into cultivating this familiarity. So that when we encounter life's complexities, life's difficulties, feeling obstructed. We don't just blame the world. We don't blame the sense objects. We don't blame Bangkok. We don't blame London. We don't blame having a cold. But rather we reflect inwards on how readily are we able to access a kind of stillness that means we can learn from this. Whatever this is, whatever life is giving us. A friend and supporter of the monastery was recently commenting to me how they always feel impressed by delicious looking donuts. You see these really super yummy looking donuts in the glass cabinet, all kind of glazed and covered in hundreds and thousands or dribbling chocolate all over them. And and he was saying how they always look so attractive, but the reality is that every time he ate one, he always felt sick. Well, we get fooled by the way things appear to be, and you know, over and over uh, again... Maybe donuts, maybe worrying states of mind. We get fooled by the inner and outer worlds that we encounter, and the question arises why do we keep getting fooled by the world? Why do we keep getting fooled by the world? Something as mundane as donuts. I mean, you think you could just stop eating donuts? I mean, uh, Well, we could ask that question to our thinking mind and we could consider it, we could think about it. I'm sure we're all capable of thinking about it. 
we could think about it in the, the chemistry of what goes on when we ingest sugar and how that impacts on our nervous system and the oxygen in the blood and we could analyse it that way and think along those lines and or we could think about it psychologically or psychotherapeutically or we could get a cognitive scientist to explain to us the whole functioning of perception and we could analyse the dynamic of being impressed by glazed donuts but probably all of us recognise that that approach only takes us so far and often stirs the mind up more and does it really resolve it? Does it mean we can stop eating donuts? Can we let go? Does that kind of thinking lead to letting go? Real letting go, deep letting go. Well, if it's a superficial impingement on our senses, maybe it does, but sometimes the deeper attachments that we have don't really get addressed by that kind of approach and this is where we can appreciate what happens if we ask that question like why do I keep getting fooled if we ask that question to a peaceful heart or a stilled mind when the mind is stilled when the heart is at peace and we introduce such a question and then feel, feel in the whole body-mind, listen, not go to our thinking faculties, not engage our thinking faculties, not because there's anything wrong with our thinking, thinking faculties, thinking definitely has its place. It's wonderful that we can think as well as we do. But being overly enamoured with thinking actually creates obstructions. And so fortunately we have these teachings which encourage us, well, let's also cultivate the mind that can turn away from thinking and turn to stillness, become acquainted with stillness. Trust in the intelligence that's accessible when the mind is quiet, when the heart is peaceful, by way of experiment. Again, not as a rejection of the thinking mind but by way of experiment by way of investigation so the active mind has its place if we couldn't think well we wouldn't be able to build buildings wonderful buildings like this a lot of thinking and planning went into building this building this monastery very dedicated generous friends and supporters committed to thinking about how to construct a monastery here on Harnham Hill. It's wonderful that that happened. Medicine, a lot of thinking, a lot of analysis, a lot of mental exploration goes into discovering and developing helpful medicines for which we are very grateful, very fortunate. But again, if all we know is the thinking mind, the active mind, and we don't know the reflection, the reflective intelligence, the reflective beauty that comes when the heart and mind is stilled, well then we're limited. Being overly enamoured with rational thinking. It's also rational thinking that gave us plastic. Plastic. 
You know, a lot of thinking must have gone into creating plastic. You know, I can remember about 50 years ago now when I was at school doing a project on plastic. Everybody was in love with plastic. We were going to wear plastic clothes, plastic cooking utensils, crimpoline, that was the thing. They didn't have, <laughs> we weren't going to do any ironing anymore. The ironing was all over. Everybody was going to wear plastic clothes that didn't need ironing anymore. And plastic, everything. Yeah. Speculation was plastic was one of the most wonderful things that had ever been invented. And Well, of course, you know, it has its place, but now we're all aware, acutely aware, that you know, plastic is responsible for much of the pollution on the planet. And we, we have a, a really complex, really complex problem to resolve. Plastic is everywhere. So rational thinking created plastic, created thalidomide, which didn't turn out so well. WMD, I mean, how did WMD get created? A lot of thinking. The rational thinking doesn't always turn out good. If we don't know how to disengage from the rational, active thinking mind and expand into a more feeling awareness, a feeling intuitive awareness, then maybe we're not able to really contemplate the consequences of some of the uh, apparently great ideas that come up. Rational thinking can create wonderful, amazing Fabulous, impressive ideas. But that doesn't mean to say that we're necessarily in tune with the consequences of acting on those ideas. Yeah, like the dynamic that we're obviously all very familiar with, the dynamic of me, me and my way, the sense of self. From one perspective, it looks really important, this sense of me. We can invest a huge amount into it. We can get a lot of happiness out of polishing and promoting this me. But we can also get an extraordinary amount of misery, extraordinary amount of suffering. We can create a tremendous amount of suffering for others by investing in this activity that we call me. And so long as all we know is the active thinking mind, then it's probably the case that this me and my way are going to register as seriously important. But what happens if we start to observe, or if we're able to observe the arising of this activity that we call me and my way, my desires, my wants, my loves, my hates, my liking, my disliking, what happens if we are able to expand the field of awareness beyond that immediate activity and observe it as it really is? Is it ultimate anymore? Is it of such ultimate significance, that activity? From the perspective of being identified as the active thinking mind, it can indeed appear ultimate. And the consequences of self-centeredness are really 
pretty sad, really. So how do we, can we find an alternative perspective on that? So once again, this is what our teachers, our wise teachers have, have instructed, uh, the kind of training that we can give ourselves into so as to become familiar with the still mind, the peaceful heart, which gives us a very different perspective on this activity. Now, once again, Ajahn Chah's way is certainly not talking about taking a position against the world or inner and outer activity, but recognizing how vulnerable we are to getting lost in activity. Not just desires for donuts, but some of the anxieties and worries and resentments that that we suffer. And they can seem so convincing. So convincing. Some people spend their whole life caught up in bitter resentment for something that happened to them and and they become identified as that. Mm-hmm. From the perspective of Dhamma, that's not an obligation. And that is certainly good news. Now, this is the example and the teaching of freedom that, that Dhamma is offering us and the example of teachers like Ajahn Chah have offered us. That we're not obliged to suffer because of the things that have happened to us. We're not obliged to believe in the way things appear to be. If we can access stillness, then it gives us another perspective. We're able to learn from... Well, Ajahn Chah's view was we should, we should determine to learn from everything, everything that's happening. One of the publications that has been reprinted and is available for free distribution uh, today. You see it again in the vestibule in the entrance to the Dhamma Hall there. One of the six books that was reprinted to especially mark this occasion is called Everything is Teaching Us. That if we have a familiarity not just with the active mind but also with the still mind, then we're in a position to be able to uh, learn from whatever life gives us. not taking a fixed position for or against activity or stillness, but to learn from both. It's similar to uh, thinking about the kind of effort that we make in practice. Sometimes what's called for is being assertive. Sometimes what's called for is being yielding. Being assertive and being yielding are very different. Very different. And likewise, sometimes we need to think. We need to be able to think, but not to get lost in thinking. Sometimes we need to be able to be still, but not get lost in stillness. Ajahn Chah talking once about cultivating loving kindness. You know, and basic Buddhist teaching, cultivating metta and and he also emphasized well, you have to use mindfulness and wisdom when you're cultivating metta. Right? <clears throat> he said if a, if a 
if a dog with rabies is attacking you, <laughs> you, don't, you don't stand there saying, my old dogs with rabies be well and happy. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> the dog sinks its teeth into your ankle. and That's not clever, that's not wise. Yes, loving kindness is a kind of yielding. If a dog with rabies is attacking you, you need a stick and you, you drive this crazed animal away and you protect yourself. You know, like our physical immune system. You've got a flu virus uh, attacking, attacking your body, invading you. And not just, my all flu viruses be happy and well. Take some vitamin C and do something to protect yourself, to ward off the viruses. We need to be familiar with assertiveness. But that's not the fixed position. Again, something Ajahn Chah was over and over again emphasizing. Any fixed position limits us. Any fixed position binds us. Any fixed position contributes to wrong view, wrong understanding, wrong perspective. When he was talking about dealing with doubt, and perhaps one of the reasons why Ajahn Chah seemed to be able to connect with educated people, city-dweller type people. He could connect with the, the villagers and the farmers as well, but he seemed to have a particular affinity with people who were very caught up in thinking and worrying and doubting and had a, seemed to have a strong affinity with, with confused Westerners. And perhaps it was because of his own experience in dealing with doubt. He talked about it a lot and remember when I was explaining to him once about agonizing doubts that I was caught up in and and he, he said, Oh yeah, he said, I know what that's like. I've been there. He said he, he used the expression he, he said he thought his head was going to explode. See such a rebirth. He thought his head was going to explode because he was thinking so much. He couldn't stop thinking. That's a lack of familiarity with stillness. Another image he used was, he said, it's like standing under a tree with an ant's nest. Yeah. In Thailand, they lots of different varieties of stinging ants, some of them really nasty critters. And if you're standing under a tree and you see this ant's nest above you and you start poking it with a stick and there's all these stinging ants falling down on you and crawling all over you and biting you and stinging you and you, you keep poking it and you say, it's stinging me, it's stinging me and you keep poking it and say, it's stinging me, it's stinging me. Says, That's what you're doing when you're thinking. It's a kind of a expression that they have in Thai for... Somebody who's a bit crazy and couldn't keep mark. Somebody who thinks a lot. Somebody who thinks a lot, so somebody's a bit crazy. And I suppose for us it's like poking a hornet's nest. And if we do that, if all we're familiar with is thinking, we don't know how to disengage and to allow, like with dealing with doubt. Instead of trying to fight it off and trying to think our way out of doubt, trying to arrive at security, but I really want to be sure, I really want to know. Sometimes when we're faced with that kind of dilemma, being assertive is, is not what's called for. 
thinking about it is not going to help. What's called for is expanding our field of awareness, sensing, perhaps sensing the spaciousness around the activity of this dilemma. Seeing that this dilemma is not ultimate. Allowing it, yielding to it, letting it be there. Seeing it from a larger perspective. Remembering stillness. And then tuning into perhaps another feeling, intuitive kind of intelligence. It's not taking a position again against thinking or activity, but it's not defining ourselves solely in terms of our ability to think. That sculpture by the French sculptor, Rodin, the thinker, otherwise known as the poet, no doubt a stunning piece of sculpture. Many people admire it. But when you look at it, and then you look at our Buddha image, it doesn't feel the same, does it? Thinking has got its place, but thank goodness there's also Buddha images. Not caught up, not consumed by thinking. Rodin himself actually commented that one reason why that was so popular, that image, was because it embodied thinking. It wasn't just a mental activity. His fist and his posture and demonstrated somebody consumed by thinking. And yes, it's a fascinating piece of sculpture, but well, personally, I'm really, really pleased that there are Buddha images that give us a contrasting perspective on it. So if there is this contrasting perspective, or is it, if there is this ability to turn to stillness as well as to thinking, as well as to activity, then, as Ajahn Chah was saying, there's a possibility we can learn from everything, meet everything. If we meet everything that life gives us and determine to learn from everything, then there's, again, as Ajahn Chah would say, there's a possibility that we'll perhaps reach letting go of everything. Like that quote from Ajahn Chah down in Kusla House there on the wall, if you let go a little, you have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you have complete peace. Well, that's certainly very attractive and very fortunate to have heard that from somebody who knows what they're talking about. For us, the question remains, how do we give ourselves more completely, more consistently into this practice. Because we can be inspired. We can read some teachings. We can hear some teachings and we can get inspired. But what really matters is, are we consistent in our effort? Sometimes letting go, when it happens, can be really wonderful. But it's not always wonderful. Sometimes the things we need to let go of are are really entrenched and they can feel, really feel like me. And if we're serious about our investigation, serious about our commitment to training, serious about walking this path, then then we don't let the feelings of intimidation 
deter us from the practice and we keep making the effort and and some of the things that as I say some of the things that become apparent as we encounter them on the path just don't want to let go of them remember there was one of Ajahn Chah's teachings he was talking about our attachments and and he said you know some of the attachments it's like it's like you're you're there hanging out with your good friends your best friends and the Buddha comes along and says okay break it up it's all over you've got to separate and when I first heard that from Ajahn Chah the miserable kind of teaching you know, I was I kind of liked that teaching the Buddha gave on you know, Kalyana Mitta, spiritual companionship is essential aspect of the spiritual life. That's, you know, having friends, that's, that's, that's very attractive. Well, it's true, but true spiritual companions are not those people who just reinforce our preferences and, and our confusion. Uh, they're not people that we necessarily blindly, heedlessly attach to. It really can feel like letting go. It really can feel like losing something very dear. So we need to train gradually and with consistency. Not getting overly idealistic. Probably many of us are familiar with the good feeling of zeal and commitment and striving and getting somewhere in practice and that has its place but it also can take us to burnout we can't necessarily sustain that kind of effort trying too hard is not the way there was one occasion when a um, one western monk who, who was demonstrably trying too hard to overcome his greed at the meal time he only had this very small amount of rice in his bowl and, uh, the food that we ate in those days traditional food of the northeast of Thailand uh, or Khao Niao uh, sticky rice and, and you'd make a ball of this sticky rice and then you'd take a bit off and you'd touch it into some curry or other and you eat it and and Ajahn Chah looked at this monk and he was obviously trying too hard and suffering as a result and you know, only had this small ball of rice thinking that he was going to overcome his greed and so Ajahn Chah made this shape and he was young Nina, young Nina, yeah. And I said, you should eat a big ball of rice. Yeah. Of course, the teachings of the forest tradition is eat little, sleep little, speak little, that's the principle. But if you cling to the principle and become overly idealistic... And you throw yourself even further out of balance. You, we want to pitch our practice at a level that we can sustain. We can keep going, not just indulging in the good feeling that comes from striving hard and feeling like we can get somewhere. The knowing, coming to know the right amount takes time, and takes gentleness, and if we have the ability to not just think, not just investigate, not just know the active mind, but also know 
the still mind, the peaceful heart, well, then we'll be in a position to be able to contemplate. Is this approach working? Is my relationship to the effort and practice suitable? Or am I caught up? I can remember another situation not long before I left Thailand. This would be about I think, 1979, and there was a, a young Westerner, a young Englishman actually, had arrived. I don't know, I can't remember if he was a, a young monk or a young Salmonera, but he was very determined, full of enthusiasm, bright eyed and bushy tailed, and determined to give himself wholeheartedly into the training. and he couldn't speak Thai yet, and so he was having his questions translated uh, to Ajahn Chah, and, and uh, he was asking Ajahn Chah for some advice on how he should practice in this, uh, the range retreat that was approaching. And, and this young fellow explained how he, he really he wanted to take on all these different ascetic practices, he going to do the, the special... Uh, arms eaters practice and the single bowl eaters practice and and this practice and the that practice these various dutanga wata or ascetic practices that the Buddha made available or encouraged he didn't make them obligatory but he said they they could be helpful and this young fellow was familiar with these uh, ascetic practices and he wanted to take on all sorts of practices and uh, the Thai word is aditan. Uh, from the Pali Aditana, or making vows and vowing to do this and vowing to do that and uh, resolutions. And so Ajahn Chah listened and, and uh, at the end of it and he replied and he said, well, he said, all those vows that you want to make, he said, I think, I think it would be better if you just vowed to do one thing. Just vow to do one thing, not lots of things. Vow to do one thing. Vow to... Keep practicing whatever happens. Whatever happens is agreeable or disagreeable. Keep practicing. This is the way that will lead to letting go. Letting go is the goal. Letting go of obstructions, letting go of attachments, letting go of confusion. And that's the goal, but we can't do it. Now, letting go happens when we understand. You know, pitching our practice at a level that we can keep going, keep going. Sometimes it means assertiveness, sometimes it means yielding, but being able to reflect on what's appropriate in any, in any given situation. And what matters is that we're consistent in our effort. And there's another expression Ajahn Chah had when he's talking about letting go and idealism and, and he, he, you have to let go with understanding. Floy Wang that I would ploy wang doi kwam ruchak. Machai ploy wang doi kwam mo. Ploy wang doi kwam ruchak. Machai ploy wang doi kwam mo. Which means let go with understanding. Don't let go with foolishness. When we're overly idealistic, we're trying too hard, we're thinking too much, we're just clinging to notions of letting go, clinging to notions of practice, and maybe letting go doesn't happen. Probably you're familiar with that story that's um, told of one of Ajahn Chah's disciples sitting in his kuti in the forest and Ajahn Chah was walking around 
looking at what was happening in the monastery. And he, he came across this monk sitting in his cootie there and the thatched roof, half of it had fallen away and it was raining and the rain was coming in and this monk was sitting there. Everything was wet. <laughs> Ajahn Chah asked him, he said, what are you doing? Why, why, don't, why don't you fix the roof? And the monk replies, oh, I'm practicing letting go, Lumpur, oh, I'm practicing letting go. And, and Ajahn Chah commented, well, that, yeah, that's the letting go of a water buffalo. And, and water buffaloes are not generally considered particularly intelligent beings. So, yes, we all know that and we've all heard many times that, and we're all interested in being able to let go, but just wanting to let go is not necessarily going to take us there. Sometimes it takes a, a lot of patience, a lot of agility. If we have the skill of not just contemplating in a coarse thinking way, but also contemplating in a still, feeling, quiet way, then we'll be in a better position to see that which leads us towards real letting go. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Namaya 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 Namaya